from the ACLU. This is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. Yesterday, Joe Biden was inaugurated as President of the United States. And today, as part of his day one agenda, he has rescinded one of the Trump administration's most incendiary orders, the Muslim ban. The Muslim ban, enacted within Trump's first days in office, virtually blocked immigration from countries with substantial Muslim populations, such as Syria, Iraq, Sudan, Libya, Somalia, and Yemen. With no warning, the order sent people across the world scrambling to avoid permanent separation from their families, their jobs, and their education. From the shadow of the Statue of Liberty <laughs> to the gates of the White House, Refugees are welcome here. a weekend of protests over President Trump's immigration crackdown. Amidst a national cry and protests in airports and on the streets around the country, the ACLU was able to secure an early victory in the courts. Civil rights lawyers took the case to an emergency court hearing in Brooklyn, where a crowd of supporters gathered and swelled into the hundreds. By late Saturday night, they had reason to celebrate. The judge, in a nutshell, saw through what the government was doing and gave us what we wanted, which was to block the Trump order. But over the years, fighting the Muslim ban became like a game of whack-a-mole. The administration would come up with superficial tweaks of language to dodge judicial scrutiny, and the ACLU and others would fight anew. In the end, we were left with a ban rubber-stamped by the Supreme Court that blocked entry to people from 13 countries around the world, mostly in Africa and the Middle East. In this episode, we are going to share stories that highlight the impact the ban has had and discuss what ending it will and won't do for the future of Muslims in America. A listener note, the conversations that follow were recorded prior to the Biden administration's move to end the ban. On the night that the Muslim ban was put into effect, I was on a plane back from Sudan where I was doing dissertation research for my PhD. This is Nisreen, a Sudanese green card holder and an assistant professor in international studies at Bryn Mawr College. I had to basically cut my fieldwork short because I heard that this ban might be passed and I was worried. I have my partner in the U.S. Um, and my life in the U.S. and I had a green card at the time. And basically, the officer looked at my green card and said, oh, uh, you, please wait a second. Usually you get told, you know, welcome home, but not this time. So I got taken into this room. And basically, um, I went through a series of interrogations by different people. Um, people asked me about my political views. Eventually, I was asked to be uh, searched. So I was taken to this room and I was searched in a pretty uncomfortable way. I was touched in my private parts had to spread my legs, you know, put my hands against the wall. And at that point, I was also handcuffed. And I thought that, you know, given that I was being handcuffed, that I was probably going to get deported. So I was kind of trying to, you know, think in my head, like, what do I do? I, I did not prepare for this. And I know that my husband who was on a night shift at work, was waiting for me at the airport. As a green card holder, Nisreen was eventually released after a harrowing experience at the airport and allowed to enter the U.S. But so many immigrants and refugees have not had that opportunity. I spoke with Manar Wahid, Senior Legislative and Advocacy Counsel at the ACLU, to learn more about how the ban was enacted. 
She works on issues that impact Arab, Iranian, Middle Eastern, and South Asian communities. For those who may not be as steeped in this issue, what exactly did the Muslim ban do? And what kind of travel and immigration did it prohibit? So the Muslim ban was one of Trump's first signature policies right out of the gate, banning Muslims from seven Muslim-majority countries, preventing them to come in to see their loved ones, reunite with their family members, pursue educational or employment opportunities, and prevent them from also receiving life-saving healthcare treatment at times. So it started with seven countries. It also started by including a ban on refugees. And at the time, the majority of refugees coming into the United States were actually also Muslim due to a lot of the the chaos in some Muslim-majority countries back in 2015 and 2016. So the refugee ban was also a Muslim ban. They issued three different iterations of the ban, consistently got blocked, trying to kind of sanitize their order and purport some kind of legal basis. Ultimately, the Supreme Court actually allowed that ban, the third ban, to go into effect. And as a result, last year in January 2020, the Trump administration then expanded that ban to 13 countries in total and really explicitly targeting people from African countries. It is reminiscent of other failures of the Supreme Court, right? If we think about Japanese incarceration through internment camps, people, you know, Fred Korematsu did not submit to the internment camps to incarceration, and he took his case all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled against him. And it took nearly 50 years to begin to right those wrongs. It was 40 years later when a federal court decision actually overturned the ruling against him. It was a few years later when there was redress and reparations for Japanese community members who had been incarcerated. And then a little while later that Fred Korematsu actually got a Medal of Freedom. Can you explain in more detail where this ban came from and how our immigration policies up until Trump took office laid the groundwork for this executive order? So the unfortunate reality is that the history of our country is rooted in a lot of racist policies, and the immigration system is no exception for that. So whether we're thinking about, you know, bans from the beginning of time, I mean, we could go further back to how people actually came to this country if we wanted to as slaves, including many Muslims, but looking towards policies that have consistently banned people or discriminated against people, what the Muslim ban used in its executive orders, the authority that the president used is a part of the Immigration and Nationality Act that allows for the suspension of visas of people from wherever the president determines with a very, very broad authority. So much like we saw with Japanese incarceration, which the government did under the guise of national security, we also saw the Muslim ban under the guise of national security. I'm wondering if more specifically, what we saw post 9-11 with the anti-Muslim rhetoric, Islamophobia sort of primed the way for where we are now. Can you draw that line or does it go even before 9-11? So it definitely goes before 9-11, but I think 9-11 is a really relevant part of policy to look at. So one of the policies that came after 9-11 was a registration program that was called NSEERS. And that was the original Muslim registration program that required people from almost entirely Muslim majority countries, men 
in a particular age group to register with the government. And as a result, tens of thousands of people were ultimately deported. People disappeared in the middle of the night. Families that didn't know where their fathers or husbands went until they could get in touch with them again, which sometimes took a very long time. But on day one in office, the Trump administration could have come in and just plugged countries back in and started doing the same thing again. And so in December of 2016, the Obama administration rescinded that infrastructure, took it down so that it couldn't be used on day one. And that was in order to try to prevent the Trump administration from being able to issue a Muslim ban out of the gate. What they did was very different than a registration program, but very, very far reaching and damaging for people Muslims in the United States, Muslims abroad, people all over the world. And I think really damaging for our country and where we had come at that point and where we were trying to move forward to. It sent the message to Muslims all over the world, including here in America, that they were not welcome here, that they could not be with their families and loved ones, that they didn't belong here. Haya, a Syrian-American, heard that message loud and clear. Her family, Syrian citizens, were blocked from emigrating to the U.S. as refugees. They had already fled Syria and had been living in the United Arab Emirates. Before the ban was enacted, they had planned to emigrate to the U.S., where Haya is a citizen and her grandparents already lived. I am a U.S. citizen. I was born in America, but my parents are Syrian and so is my sister. So just growing up in the Middle East, it's kind of like I'm a first generation American, also like the first one in my entire family. So I was always kind of special in that sense, like, oh, Haya is American. Like she's going to at some point she's going to, you know, I kind of had that weight on my shoulders. So throughout my life, I've always been hyper aware of immigration and the word visa. And when I moved to America when I was 17 and I met my American classmates, most of who have never left the state and never left the U.S. And I would, you know, try and explain to them my story and my background. And they would say, what's a visa? Like, why do you need a visa? And I was like, I couldn't believe because I remember being seven and like discovering what the word visa meant. And, you know, I was basically very hyper aware of my immigrant status and like the politics of my situation. In 2016, there was a very precarious socioeconomic situation happening in the UAE, in the Gulf in general, but particularly in the UAE, just because of foreign policy issues with Syria and other countries, political issues that are too detailed to get into, but basically uh, Syrians and immigrants in general are being targeted and being deported, but particularly Syrians. And obviously, my parents were terrified, you know, that they would be next. And obviously, in the UAE, there is no court procedures or, you know, like warnings or civil rights or anything. So once your name is called, you know, you're out. You don't you don't plead your case. So my parents said to themselves, well, if we were banned from America, where else can we go? So my parents thought, okay, we're in this very bad situation. You're American. Why don't you move for a year, you know, do your senior year in America where your cousins are and my grandparents are in Washington State? And I said, okay, obviously family comes first. And so I moved there, lived by myself with my grandparents. And it was, of course, very, very difficult because because of a Muslim ban, my parents couldn't come to my graduation. And I really remember crying because I was at that time 
uh, in my school and my friend was asking me like why are you so upset like he's like what does this have anything to do with you and I said well Syrians are banned but then like everyone else you know just another day just another normal day of business it was surreal watching it like this person calling for the ban of my family and because of their nationality and because of their assumed religion and ethnicity so it was completely surreal it was shocking and I just I was speechless and so was my family like we were kicked in the gut it was like a slap across the face like okay we're shutting down the last available door for you of opportunity and now you're just going to have to fend for yourself and in hindsight now as a grown adult with much more knowledge of the U.S. political system and everything and especially in the immigration system the creation of the Muslim ban was, in my opinion, kind of not bound to happen, but there was definitely precedent set for it. And so the Muslim ban is kind of like the cherry on top of U.S. immigration policy, you know, like everything's in place. So I think it's important to emphasize that the Muslim ban is not the beginning and it won't be the end, if that makes sense. There are definitely policies in place that target Muslim communities and Arab communities. So, I mean, what's the point of my family and I moving or visiting America, you know, to see our family, to be happy, you know, to be reunited if we're going to be under surveillance, if we're going to be harassed, if people are going to constantly ask us, where were you at this moment or what happened here? You know, just the unnecessary, excruciatingly long visa process, uh, I think, So in that sense, the Muslim ban is definitely the beginning. And I hope that the Biden administration doesn't just focus on the Muslim ban. It focuses on the much broader issue of immigration in the U.S., which makes it very difficult for people like myself and like my family, for example, to become citizens or to immigrate properly. Eventually, Haya's family was granted refugee status in Canada. Haya left the U.S. to rejoin her family and attend university. The ACLU's Manar agrees with Haya that certain immigrants, black and brown immigrants, were not welcome, even if they were already living in the U.S. When we call it the expanded Muslim ban, we always acknowledge the impact on Africans in particular because it is such a critical piece of who the Trump administration is trying to attack. And that is something we've seen through every policy they've done. So if you think about You know, they've tried to rescind various types of um, temporary protected status. So that is for people already living in the United States who are from particular countries that they cannot go back to right now because of the state of affairs in that country, whether it be because of a natural disaster or some other reason that makes it unsafe for them to return. And a lot of those countries are black and brown countries. So you'll see a lot of overlap between the countries included in the Muslim ban and the Trump administration's attempts to rescind temporary protected status. If you think about denaturalization efforts from this administration, so they have completely ramped up denaturalization efforts and have been filing cases for the last nearly four years now at a rate which we've never seen before. Denaturalization has always been this very rarely used tool in the most severe of circumstances. And instead, the Trump administration has filed denaturalizations in the civil context at three times the rate that we've seen in decades and decades, and is doing that targeting overwhelmingly black and brown immigrants yet again. To Nisreen, the anti-black focus of the administration's policies is particularly troubling. As a black Muslim immigrant, being treated like I'm a criminal, no matter what I do, 
I think that criminalization of black and brown immigrants needs to stop. I applied for temporary protected status at one point. I had been here for, I think, close to 10 years. My visa was expiring. I was denied temporary protected status and had to leave the country for two years. There are many ways in which the ban is and was anti-Black in the way that it's been implemented, even in the way that it's been covered in the news. I felt that, I mean, this is partly why I spoke out um, after I was detained, even though I am probably, you know, I have relative privilege as a PhD student who doesn't risk losing their job, you know, because I'm speaking out, but also as someone who is a green card holder, right? There are many people who weren't able to speak out because they feared not being able to be then eligible for citizenship or, or their green cards and so forth. So I think it's both in terms of the way it was implemented, the way that as the ban has expanded, it's gotten to include more and more African countries, some of which are not Muslim majority African countries. So as we see this criminalization of, of black and brown people in this country uh, through immigration legislation, I think it speaks to a larger kind of criminal justice system that is deeply unjust. So really, frankly, through this experience, I've become someone who believes that we need to abolish both the criminal and the immigration system, and we need to build something different that is humane, that treats people with dignity. For Manar, an immigration system that treats people with dignity is exactly what the ACLU would like to see prevail following the Biden administration's rescinding of the Muslim ban. I think that the Biden administration recognizes that this was one of the most horrific policies that people all over the country abhorred from the second it started. It stood for everything that we did not want as a country in that moment. And I think the Biden administration is fully aware that this is one of Trump's signature policies and that they don't want to be a part of it. When the order is rescinded, what is the process that will follow? Like, what will happen to all the people who had, for example, their visas rejected over the course of these years? So that remains to be seen. What we know for a fact is that the Biden administration has promised to rescind the Muslim ban on day one. And so the open questions become, what happens to those who have been denied or are have been in processing for an extended period of time? Will people denied be forced to pay fees again? Will people whose diversity visa lottery numbers came up be able to kind of get that number back? Those numbers are gone now, right? And so how are they gonna, how are they gonna make people whole who have missed their opportunities? How are they going to fix that situation? We actually had the opportunity to speak to a Yemeni man named Anwar about his experience being denied by the ban after winning the visa lottery. And I think it's a really good example of exactly what you're saying, that there's so much work to be done to account for the harm of the ban even after it's gone. He spent everything that his family had at the time to even get the visa, and then it was just rejected. I won in 2018. After my win, I was ecstatic because it meant that I could move to America, far away from my home country, which suffers from war, destruction, and the militias that rule the country. So I gathered a large sum of money from my friends and took out bonds and liabilities in my own name, which amounted to $8,000. Due to the war in Yemen, there is no American embassy in Yemen. For that reason, I was forced to travel to Djibouti. We arrived in Djibouti and went to the embassy. 
They requested us to pay a visa fee in the amount of $320 for each one of us. In other words, during the interview, I paid around $1,320 in fees for four. Nevertheless, the interview was carried out, and everything went well. There were no issues. In his response, the consular officer informed me that we are from one of the countries for which a ban forbidding its citizens from entering the United States had been issued. He gave me the rejection letter at that moment as well. Of course, I was very shocked. After all, I had sent all my belongings to Djibouti and had moved there as well. I had prepared to travel to America. I had sent all that I own, and it was very hard for me to return to Yemen. I waited, hoping against hope for an appeal on the ban or for something else to happen. I waited for four months, and then because I felt that there was no benefit in staying, I had no choice but to return to Yemen. I returned with my children by crossing the sea in a boat because I did not have any money and thus could not afford airfare. The journey was very tiring and exhausting. My aim is for this wrong to be redressed and for the visa to be restored and reinstated. I have felt optimistic and I have great hope that this wrong will be made right, God willing. Of course, I speak on everyone's behalf. We are a WhatsApp group consisting of 184 Yemenis. We are in constant contact and use Twitter to post tweets on the account pages of President Biden, Kamala Harris, and other American officials on a daily basis. We are trying to reach out to the press. We hope for journalists to ask this question of President Biden. What is our status? Once the ban is lifted and relations are restored, how will our issue be resolved? Our situation is complicated. Therefore, we have great hope in a new administration. The administration of President Biden. Anwar's story is the experience of so many Yemenis whose visa lottery numbers came up, who spent not just all of their savings, but Anwar borrowed money from all of his friends and family to bring his family potentially to the United States, including his two small children, to build a life for them so that they might be able to dream and have futures and not be in the middle of a war. And that is a community, not just in Yemen, but you know, uniquely impacted in Yemen, that the Biden administration is going to have to to reckon with how to make people whole again. Rescinding the Muslim ban is obviously a crucial first step. But what else should we pressure the Biden administration to do going forward in order to truly make this country a better place for Muslims? Like what other legislative priorities do we have in mind? When you have discriminatory government policies or discriminatory practices by government agencies, that transcends into communities. It transcends into the empowerment of hate and the commission of hate crimes. And so the impact of this is very far reaching. If we look within our immigration system in particular, there is you know, the need to rescind every policy that came out of the Muslim ban. So 
they have to restore temporary protected status for communities who are now under threat because of Trump's attempts to rescind that status. They have to suspend denaturalization efforts until they can get a full assessment of what is happening, what are the different offices that have been created. Um, They have to close those offices so that we can go back to denaturalization in only the rarest of circumstances. You can't make someone an American citizen and then constantly be under threat of losing that status simply because of where you were born and how you became an American citizen. They have to get rid of programs that discriminate against Muslims writ large. So if you think about immigration has for like years now been seen through a national security lens. How do we get out of that lens? National security is a blanket term that has been used to target the same communities over and over again without sufficient evidence. One of the other things the Biden administration has committed to doing is comprehensive immigration reform. One of their first promises is also to release an immigration bill that is their vision for immigration. It is my hope that we will see in that a change in terms of systems, right? Will we see language like is in the No Ban Act that moves away from national security frameworks into evidence-based structures? Will we see a pathway to citizenship? And will that pathway to citizenship truly be inclusive? So basically taking off the blanket of fear that gives carte blanche to all kinds of inhumane policies. Absolutely. And I think it's important to understand that this attempt to start seeing people as humans is something that we have struggled with as a society since the beginning. It didn't start with Muslims. Black people have been trying to be seen as human and treated as human in this country since its inception. And so how do we actually start to move that forward? And I think, you know, this past summer was a different moment in this country in terms of really fighting for Black lives. And I hope that we will continue to see that progress and we'll move forward. And I hope the Biden administration will be a part of that. I know that you you have these hopes. Are you hopeful? It depends on the day. (laughs) I am hopeful of a future in which we start to take down these systems. I think progress takes a really long time. Equality, equity, these are principles that have been written into our laws for decades, but we haven't seen their full realization in society. And so as a policymaker, I'm very aware of how slow change can be. But I think that these are steps forward. We took so many steps backwards for the last four years. But President-elect Biden really has to not just take us back to where we were four years ago, but actually start to move us into the future. And it is our job as advocates and activists and community members to push them to do that. Manar, thank you so much for this. And by the time this comes out, I am so looking forward to being able to celebrate the rescinding of the Muslim ban. Me too. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. I actually meant bye-bye to the Muslim ban, not to you, but yes. Oh, yeah. Bye to you as well, Manar. Bye-bye to the Muslim ban. (laughs) Thank you so much to Nisreen, Haya, and Anwar for sharing your stories with us. And thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support our work fighting for the rights of immigrants, particularly those impacted by the Muslim ban, you can donate at aclu.org slash liberty. Until next week, stay strong.